Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody this morning. I know we do have some guests who are with us today, and so if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Bill, and it's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor here at the table. And so if I didn't meet you on your way in, uh, I would love to be able to introduce myself to you on your way out. Um, if, so if you are new with us today and you have questions about anything that happens in the service this morning or about the church at all, um, I'll be available afterwards out at our connection area, so out the doors to the right. And I want you to know, too, if, for those of you that are here on a regular basis, if you ever, at the end of a service, just want somebody to talk to, uh, maybe processing through what has happened in the service or what you've heard in the message or something like that, um, don't feel like you're bothering me um, or, you know, Cody or Melissa, like, feel free to bother us. We want to um, help and encourage you. Um, if you need that, we're always available to you. Um, I got to tell you, though, I am, like, real excited about today's service. Cody kind of hinted at it a little bit ago, and I just kind of want to get to the end, Um, but unfortunately, you're going to have to put up with me for a couple of minutes first before we get there, Um, but I don't want to take any more time than I have to take today, so I want to pray for us really quickly and then, then jump right into the message, so pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that over these next few minutes that you would quiet our hearts and that we would be able to hear from you. I pray that you would meet us where we are. Um, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, um, but God, that we would sense your presence with us today. And we ask all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. I wonder if you pay attention to the words of the Christmas carols that we sing. Probably if you're like me, you actually don't. Because when you think about it, there are only just a handful of songs that we sing every single year, and the older that you get, the more familiar you become with them, and you just kind of stop paying attention to them. It's kind of like, you know, Jesus born in a stable, placed in a manger, okay, on to the next one. I want you to know, though, there are some of the songs that we sing that are not based in reality. There's two in particular that I'm referring to, and those two songs are some of our favorites, but they are Silent Night and Away in a Manger. I want you to stop for just a second and think about what is presented to us in those songs. I mean, yes, Jesus was born in a stable, placed in a manger, the Bible tells us that, but everything else in those songs, not real. Because if you stop and think about the picture that's presented about the night that Jesus was born, at least for me, this is the picture that I get in my mind. It's Mary sitting in a rocking chair with an afghan laying across her lap as she awaits the stork to come and deliver baby Jesus, who is sleeping fully content and will stay that way for the next eight hours. That's not real. I mean, think about it. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin, mother and child, sleep in heavenly peace. Or away in a manger, no crib for a bed. Little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. The silent night? That's not real. Those of you who are parents know that there is nothing real about what is depicted in those songs. I barely remember the nights that our children were born. Now, It is entirely possible that Jesus was a super baby and different than all other babies. But I don't think he was that different. What I remember about the nights that our kids were born is that it wasn't really quiet. And there was not a lot of sleeping. The reason being, babies have to eat every couple of hours. 
And do you know how they tell you that they need to eat every couple of hours? They cry. So there's not, a, 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 not quiet. There's a lot of crying, a lot of sleepless time that first night that babies are born. Then, so take all of that, that what you know, if you're a parent, what you've experienced, and then add in farm animals. And then on top of that, you have these weirdo shepherds that wander in from a field afar. Like, what is that about? I mean, we talked about that last week. But, like, you know what we wanted the nights that our children were born? To be left alone. We didn't want anybody bothering us. But we get this picture, silent night. Life is wonderful, but it is not real. I want to talk about Facebook for just a second this morning. Because Facebook has, and probably Instagram would fall into this at this point now, but it's been called life's great filter. Because what happens if you scroll through someone's Facebook feed, what you would find are pictures that depict a perfect life where there is no stress, where everyone is always happy, you know, mom and dad always getting along with children, siblings always getting along with one another, no stress, life is easy, there are no problems. What you see on Facebook depicted is the silent night. We all know the silent night is not real. We all know, we've experienced this, for, to get that one perfect picture, it took 20 minutes of trying to coax our kids to stay still long enough so we could take the dumb picture, and then you just yell at them, stand still, smile, and you take it, but then you post it on Facebook and everybody sees, see, life is wonderful. But the silent night, that's not real. In reality, we know this life is full of stress. It is hard. There are times, because of all of the things that we go through, that we think to ourselves, the last thing I want is one more responsibility that I have to take care of, one more thing that I have to do. I don't want any of that. What I would love to do is get under the covers, pull the sheets over my head, and just stay there for a couple of days. But we can't. We can't stay there because God has given us something he wants us to do. So this is week two of our series called Regifting, where we're talking about how to give away what God has so generously given to us, which is our understanding of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us, that relationship with God that comes through the re realization that when we could do nothing, Jesus accomplished everything. And I know that there are times, because of what we go through, that sharing our faith can seem like one of those other things that we have to do or responsibility that we have to take care of. But I would love for us to get to the place where we think, not I have to do this, but I can't believe that I get to do this. That we recognize sharing the gift of Jesus is an incredible privilege for all of us. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is in Acts chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to look at Acts 1, 4 through 8 here in just a second. Um, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, it'll be on the screen as I read it, or if you are a YouVersion Bible app user, you can find your way uh, to our live event and follow along there. But Acts 1, 4 through 8, it's verse 8, relatively famous verse. It's where Jesus told the disciples that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But prior to that commissioning that Jesus gave to the disciples, they asked this question. 
might seem strange to us. And we're going to focus in on that question a little bit. Think about why the disciples asked the question as we think about living out the mission in the midst of the chaos that we go through in life. So let me read this section for us. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4, it says this, While he was with them, he being Jesus, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, here's the question, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The title of today's message is Christmas Calm. I want you to think about this. All I want for Christmas is calm. I don't know if you've ever thought that before. Like maybe instead of if your spouse or maybe your kids ask you what you want for Christmas, instead of thinking about that new shirt or new pair of shoes or the soda stream so that you can make your own sparkling water at home. I actually got that for Mandy for her birthday this last week, and so we've been using it a lot. It's awesome because the brochure says that we're, we're going to save thousands of dollars because we're not buying cans of sparkling water anymore, so I'm real excited about that. But instead of thinking about any of those things, what if the first thought is, you know what would be really nice? Calm. Like if I could just be left alone for a day, like that's really what I want. All I want for Christmas is calm. At the beginning of this section that we're looking at this morning there in Acts chapter 1, what we find is that Jesus is still with the disciples. So this takes place after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, but prior to the ascension. Actually, the very next thing, if we were to keep reading, is uh, the recounting of the ascension when Jesus ascends back to heaven. So at this point, Jesus has met with the disciples on several different occasions. He's given them their mission, or what we refer to as the Great Commission, so they know all of those things. And here Jesus says to them before he leaves, hey, stay in Jerusalem and wait for what my Father has promised you. They were to wait for the Holy Spirit. And then after that instruction, they ask what to us may seem like a really strange question. Is now the time that you're going to restore Israel's kingdom? After all that they'd experienced, all that they'd been through, what Jesus had just told them, why is it that they ask this question about restoring Israel's kingdom? I think there are a few different reasons for that, potentially, that they're asking this question. I think one reason may be incomplete theology. During the first century, in the, the, the time of Jesus, and really throughout uh, Jewish history, they had heard of the coming of the Messiah, but their expectation of the coming of the Messiah was that he would establish Israel once again as a world power. That's what their expectation was, that it was about an earthly kingdom that the Messiah was going to establish. And in fact, we see this throughout the Gospels, the disciples really struggling to understand the nature of the kingdom that Jesus was bringing. We read the story about two brothers, James and John. They go to Jesus. In one account, it's their mother that goes to Jesus. But they say to him, when you 
establish your kingdom. Let one of us sit on your right hand and the other sit on your left. And really what they're asking about, they're thinking earthly kingdom, and what they're asking for is in some ways to have the two highest positions of influence, like cabinet-level positions in the kingdom, because they're thinking earthly kingdom. And so I think part of what's happening here is that the disciples have incomplete theology. Even though, in spite of all that they had heard from Jesus and experienced from Jesus, they're still thinking earthly kingdom. They're struggling to understand the reality of the, the nature of the kingdom that Jesus came to establish, that it was one without borders, and it was a spiritual kingdom for all people. So that incomplete theology. It's also possible, too, that part of the reason that the disciples asked that question about restoring the kingdom of Israel is because they had an incorrect focus. In this incomplete theology, they're thinking about earthly kingdom, but maybe even an incorrect focus where they're still thinking about what's in it for me as a follower of Jesus. They're still focused on what they get out of being a follower of Jesus, or that relationship that they had with Jesus. Because if Jesus were to establish an earthly kingdom, like they were his closest followers, so that would likely mean for them positions of power and influence, authority, maybe even wealth in that. And so maybe they're asking Jesus, hey, we've been your followers for a really long time. What's in it for me? What do we get out of this? Is it possible that they had incomplete theology, an incorrect focus, but I think more than anything else, what the disciples really wanted was calm. I think when we stop and think about all that the disciples had experienced over the last six weeks, they were likely emotionally exhausted. Just think about the events. They learned of Jesus' death. He told them about that, told them that he was going to leave. Then one of their own betrayed Jesus. They saw him arrested. They watched him be crucified. And at that point, they probably thought that they had wasted pretty much the last three years of their lives as they followed Jesus. There was a period of grief for a couple of days. Then they learned about the resurrection, didn't know what to think about that, but then all of a sudden Jesus appears to them as if he had just walked through a wall, and I'm sure that there was a lot of joy and excitement from that, but just think about the emotional roller coaster that they had been on. They've likely been living on adrenaline for the last month, but you can't do that forever. And so at this point, as they're gathered with Jesus once again, they're saying, hey, Jesus, will you establish your kingdom? Because if you establish your kingdom, then that means that life should get a lot easier for us, Right? I think what the disciples really wanted more than anything else was just calm. I wonder how often you get to the point where you think to yourself, man, if I could just be left alone, life would be great. Now, you, you may be extroverted. You may love being around people all the time. That's how you get energized. I'm not that way. I'm an introvert. I have to get re-energized away from people. And I feel like those periods where I think to myself, I just need to be left alone for a little while, happen far more frequently than they used to. A lot of reasons for that. Part of it is I think that we're just exhausted. The extremes of life seem to be far more extreme than they've ever been. 
You turn on the news every night. It seems like there is a new crisis that needs to be handled. Otherwise, it will spell the end of all human existence. The problems are so big and there's nothing we can do anything about any of them. I think we're exhausted too because our schedules are too full and we run too fast. We try to redline life and that will only end in failure. I heard somebody describe the way that most people live life in this way. It's like the tachometer on your car. So on your car, if you don't know what that is, there is a gauge. It's numbered like one through seven or eight, something like that. And over on the right-hand side, at some point, there is a red line. It measures how hard your engine is working. It's one through eight, and it's times a thousand, measures the RPMs, revolutions per minute. It tells you how hard your engine's working. So when you press the gas, the gauge, the needle moves over to the right. If you were to put the gas pedal all the way to the floor of your car, eventually you would get into that red area. And the reason that that is painted red, it's red over there, is to tell you to stop doing what you're doing because if you continue to do that, very soon your engine is going to explode. Here's how most of us live life. We figure out where that red line is, back off just a little bit, just under the point of failure, and that's where we live every day, day after day, week after week, and it's no wonder we're exhausted. You got to think about the way that we're living our lives. Another reason that we just want to be left alone is because we're lonely. I know you're thinking, that doesn't make any sense at all. How is it that I want to be left alone, but you're telling me that the reason I want to be left alone is because I am lonely. Those two things seem opposite, but I'll tell you how they go together. You want to be left alone in spite of the fact that you're around people all the time because you have very unhealthy relationships. Rather than living in interdependent relationships, which are healthy, life-giving relationships, I depend on you, you depend on me. That's what is life-giving about relationships. You don't have those healthy relationships, and likely the way that you live is a self-reliant life. So when you have problems, I have to deal with those myself. I have to take care of those things myself. And then you live in dependent relationships where you feel like everybody in your life is simply depending on you for something. So every uh, relationship that you have, every interaction that you have, you just feel like people want something from you. And so when those are the relationships in our lives, we can really easily get to the place of thinking, well, if I just avoid people, I'll avoid problems. That's what I really need to do. But maybe the people aren't the problem. You need to figure out how to get some healthy relationships where people know you, know the things that you're dealing with, and can help you and be an encouragement to you, to give life to you. But maybe part of the reason you want to be left alone is because you're actually lonely. Another reason that we just want to be left alone is because we aren't sure it's worth it. We can get to that point in our minds where we just want to be left alone when we think that the struggles that we face on a daily basis, the the effort that we give, the things that we try to do is we try to do the best that we can to be as good as we can, and all of that, we're just not sure that it's actually worth it in the end. We read about that struggle a little bit in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, who's Israel's second 
uh, the third king, the son of David, he writes in Ecclesiastes that he gave himself to all of these different pursuits, and at the end of the day, they were meaningless like chasing after the wind. Just not sure it was worth it. I think that's where the disciples were. In that moment, with all that they had gone through, they were just absolutely exhausted. And so they're thinking, Jesus, if you just establish your kingdom, life is going to be easier for us. Then life will be great. But Jesus gave a mission in the midst of the chaos. Now for us, that doesn't mean that we don't think about the way that we live our lives because we can't redline life forever. That will lead to failure. There may be adjustments that we need to make. We absolutely need healthy relationships, those people around us that give life to us, that are helpful and supporting of that. But the reality is Jesus gives a mission in the midst of the chaos. It's interesting, this question that they ask, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he, you know, he kind of never really answers the question. His response is basically this, eh, don't worry about it. You'll be all right. Don't worry about the time. Like, you'll be fine. And then he reiterated the mission. You will be my witnesses. It's interesting. If, if the disciples' focus was on, like, peace and calm for themselves, that's what they really wanted. You know, Jesus didn't actually address that. But he promised something better. He reminded them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in John 16, 7, he talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He told them that the Spirit was going to come, but for the Spirit to come, he had to go away. And so it would only be with him leaving that the Spirit would come. And then Jesus said this, it will be better for you. And I will tell you, that does not make any sense to me. Sure seems to me like a living, breathing, talking Jesus is better than an invisible, still, small voice spirit. But Jesus said it's better for the spirit to come. And I think we see why in this passage. Because in verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Regardless of whether or not the Spirit came, the mission would still be the same. Tell people about Jesus. So, we could try to do that on our own, in our own strength, with our own power, which leads to burnout and failure, or we could be empowered by the Holy Spirit, which always leads to success. Jesus told the disciples, listen, you've got a job to do in the midst of the chaos. You will be witnesses, but you will not be alone in this because the Spirit's coming. If the disciples' concern is their needs and where they were, Jesus did not address that at all. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't care about their needs, but the urgency and importance of the mission superseded how they felt and what they needed. Again, even though he cared about how they felt and wanted to meet their needs, they were only going to be able to do what Jesus called them to do with the coming of the Spirit, and he reminded them of something better. The mission in the midst of the chaos. So for us... How do we live out the mission in the midst of the chaos? 
so that we do what Jesus has called us to do. And so we, in sharing Jesus, it's not that thing that we have to do, but we get to the mindset where we think, I can't believe that I get to do this. I'm going to give you three things really quickly. Number one, remember this, that we are equipped and empowered to do what we've been called to do. We do not do it alone. It is the Holy Spirit that works through us. And as the Holy Spirit works through us, as we are sharing Jesus with people, that is where we will be successful. It only comes through the work of the Spirit who empowers us to do what we have been called to do. Number two, think about this. Sometimes we witness with our words, but we always witness with our lives. Sometimes we witness with our words, but we always witness with our lives. As the world is spinning in chaos around us, how are we effective at sharing Jesus with people? Number one, we live different. We live different. We have that peace that passes all understanding. And the difference is, because of the work of God in our lives, it has to show up in the way that we treat other people, the way that we talk about other people, the way that we speak to people, even people that are different than us or have different values than we do or hold different positions than we do. And then, as we are living different lives as a result of the work of Jesus in us, it is then, when people see the differences, that we're able to say to them, the reason I am different is because of Jesus, and we can point them to Jesus with our words. Last, how do we live out the mission consistently? Know this, it's always worth it. It is always worth it. Some of you, you give a lot. Show up every week, do your best, you open doors, teach classes, lead groups. And there are times, listen, I know this, in the midst of the busyness of life, you think to yourself, is this really worth it? Because it's a lot. Working with people is not always fun. And you can easily get to the point where if you're not seeing the fruit where you think to yourself, can I just be left alone for a little while? But I want you to know the effort that you give, it's worth it. It's always worth it. Today, I want to show you why. Watch this video. My name is Deborah, and I've decided to get baptized. Uh, my journey to this time has started about two years ago when I was very broken and lost. And God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And he introduced into my life a group of people uh, that loved me and showed me that if I could just give my life and my will over to the care of God, that I could live differently. And it took time, but I watched and I watched and I learned through their experience, strength and hope. And I made the change and I turned my life over and my will over to the care of God. And today my life is very different and it's full of joy and love and forgiveness and happiness. And today I choose to be baptized in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Danielle, she's very active, energetic, happy. 
uh, kid. Um, she grew up just like any other kid, but she has had some obstacles in her life. Um, Danielle didn't start walking until she was like seven years old, and she had to have a major surgery in order to start walking. And it was her faith in God that really brought her through and brought her to the point where she is now. It's, it's like a few moments. Um, Danielle has always uh, been into the church and wanted to be more active in church. And um, it was just listening to her uh, in her room, always praising God. Just, just out of nowhere, she's always praising God. And um, she felt so comfortable here and that was when she was ready. And unfortunately with Danielle, it's not just her verbally, it's the, her actions that really show that she was ready to accept the Lord and Savior. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life? Yes. Are you ready and are you excited to get baptized? Yes, I am. So today in the second service, we get to baptize Deborah and Danielle. That's why we do what we do. In the midst of the struggles, we get the opportunity, the privilege of seeing people's faith come alive. And so today we can celebrate two stories. And I want you to know, if you're here and maybe God has been doing something in your life, maybe just through watching those videos, something is happening and you want somebody to talk to, listen, don't leave today without talking to one of us. Because I want you to know it's worth it. It's always worth it. Will you pray with me?